You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today in my guest chair, I have an incredible woman. Her name is Sidrola Maruska. She is the founder of Sidrola Maruska Consulting. She's a speaker, a consultant, the host of the award-winning podcast, Diversity Dish. Sidrola spends a big part of her professional life teaching, speaking, and educating on racism. In fact, two of her talks really jumped out at me. 50 Shades of People, How to Be a Diversity Advocate Even When You Are Not the Boss, and How to Be a Diversity Attracting Entrepreneur. Bridge to you listeners, you're going to be in for a treat. Sidrola, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Monique. It's such a pleasure to be here. It is my absolute honor. Let's dive right in. The first question I often ask my guests is, if they could choose to be anywhere in the world right now, where would they choose to be and why? I think I would have to say Haiti. And I know that that sounds a little odd, but I am a first-generation Haitian-American born here in the United States. And I remember visiting, I've only visited Haiti one time, but I remember getting to Haiti and feeling like, wow, I have found my people (laughs) Uh, because I understood the language that was being spoken all around me. And it was just such a strong connection. But besides the people, the island was just amazing. It spoke to me. There mountains on one side, the ocean is on the other. And it's just an incredible place that I think just doesn't get the level of respect that it really deserves. And the people don't get the level of respect that they deserve considering their history. I think because of their history, they are often maligned and just simply not taken seriously. And I think that That's just unfortunate because they have so much to teach the world and they've done so much historically to help the world, to help others. And if you dig into their history, you would understand what I mean by that. They even helped the enslaved people here try to gain freedom. So I think that if I could be anywhere in the world, I would love to be in Haiti so that I can connect more and learn more about where I come from and where those enslaved people came from. 
Oh my God, suck passe. <laughs> this <Not> is, <laughs> yes, this is what I'm talking about. First, I absolutely love your response. And I haven't been to Haiti myself. And you're so right because Haiti has been maligned. It's been ostracized. It's been positioned in a very negative way, especially in mass media. And I will tell you, growing up in the islands of the Bahamas, I mean, if you wanted to insult someone, you would call them a Haitian. And it wasn't until I traveled. It wasn't until I grew up and I learned more. In fact, I have some really great Haitian friends, love Kumpa music, love Haitian food. There's so much we have in common than we have that are different. But I think to your point, being able to connect and go back to a place where you understand and you you are expressing like this desire to learn where you're from, it's definitely always going to be a place that's going to feel comfortable for you. With that, I want to jump right to you know, you grew up in New York, which is considered a melting pot of cultures. And, you know, speaking with the perspective that people from Haiti are not truly respected and appreciated and recognized, I'm curious to know what has your experience been when connecting with other Black cultures? It's such an interesting question because, as you said, you know, I grew up in New York and I grew up in New York really in the 80s. And there were a lot of things going on at that time, especially with regard to to Haitians. Um, At that time was when AIDS first came up. And one of the things that people would say is, oh my gosh, you're Haitian, you've got AIDS. Because the thought was that Haitians had brought AIDS to the country. So being Haitian wasn't something that a lot of my peers tend to shy away from. But because of my dad, the way that my dad spoke about the country and because of the way that he expressed his patriotism, his love for his country, I never felt embarrassed to be Haitian. But I did realize that there were a lot of Haitians who were embarrassed to be Haitian. They would call themselves Bahamian or they would say that they were Jamaican or they would even completely just assimilate and just say that they were uh, Black American. And I understand that. But at the same time, it's sad because the history that you negate is a really strong and beautiful history. So during that time, I had friends that were from Jamaica. I had friends that were from the Bahamas. I had friends from everywhere, Black American friends. And I don't know if it was just the circle that was in because it was very protected circles. Uh, We were in a private religious school, private religious community. I didn't experience a lot of those things from my friends. We were just friends. We were people. We knew each other's backgrounds. We enjoyed each other's backgrounds. I enjoyed Jamaican food. They enjoyed Haitian food, music, all those things. We enjoyed each other's cultures. But in the bigger picture, there was a lot going on in terms of, oh gosh, you don't want to be Haitian because you've got AIDS. You don't want to be Haitian because you came on a boat. You're illegal. There's so many things that were around, but that I did not directly get exposed to, but that I saw happening around me. So yeah, New York is that, you know, melting pot. You walk down the street and you will hear 10 different languages in one block. And I love that about New York, but they're also, you know, they're pockets, you know, and it's, it's human nature to stick to those people who are most like you and who feel like you and who think like you. So there's always that 
dichotomy and everything. Mm -hmm. I love what you are highlighting here because for so many Black people, when they are ashamed of where they're from and they distance themselves from where they're from, it creates some internal dissonance. It creates some internal battle where you're not truly showing up. And I can relate to having colleagues who are afraid of being from where they're from. And I had a few of those people on my show, but that's why I think your story and your message is so powerful because today, you focus on having these very difficult conversations around race and racism. How did you get to this point to focus on this mission? Wow, it was a long and winding road. Let's just say that. This is not at all where I thought I would be. If you'd asked me in high school what I was going to be, I was going to be a pediatrician. I was going to be a doctor. Oh, yes. And, yes. And I got to college and I started taking some science courses and I was like, yeah, that doctor thing, I don't think that's going to work out so well. So I ended up doing uh, something more creative. I was a graphic arts major in college. But then something else very interesting happened. I graduated college, now I'm dating myself, but I graduated from college in 1991. And 1991, I graduated with manual graphics information and everything had shifted to digital graphics. And so I was obsolete. As soon as I graduated, I was obsolete. Wow. And I thought, what am I going to do now? And every job I looked at, they needed all these different computer software knowledge that I didn't have because it wasn't being really taught in schools in that way. And I thought, where are they going to get these people? Because I just graduated from college and I don't know this stuff. And so, you know, long story short, I kind of taught myself how to use the computer, taught myself software so that I could go from being a the receptionist with a computer on my on my desk to being an assistant to being an executive assistant and that was kind of my my path professionally I did some corporate training and honestly it was just all work it was just all jobs but I always had this fervor of wanting to do something for myself I moved to Atlanta in Atlanta I got into a situation that was way less than ideal. I was in a relationship that I should not have been in because he was married and I ended up pregnant. And when that happened, I decided I was going to keep my baby and make the changes that I needed to make in order to change my life. Well, subsequently, right around 20 weeks, I had a miscarriage, a miscarriage in after laying in the hospital for two weeks upside down with my head lower than my hips because I'd gone into preterm labor. My amniotic sac burst, my water broke. And so I had to deliver a baby that was not meant to live in this world. And that was kind of a low point for me. And at that time, which I hadn't realized until many years later, at that time, I felt something had gone out within me. A light had gone out. And because I was so ashamed, I knew better and I didn't do better. And here I had come into this situation and my parents were so supportive 
And my family was incredibly supportive, just surrounding me with love and encouragement. And I was able to get through that time, but I didn't realize how much shame and how much embarrassment I had internalized because of that situation. And so I'm going along, going along, and pretty much doing things that are, that are easy, finding the easy way. And whenever I find myself stepping outside of my comfort zone, something happens and I think to myself, oh my gosh, no, you know, I'm not worthy of this. This is not something that I deserve. Uh, and that was especially true when I got pregnant with my son. I got married. I, had, I got pregnant with my son. And at 20 weeks, I went into preterm labor. And I thought, oh my God, I got to do it right. I got to do it right. And I was put on bed rest. And although I spent that bed rest time just relaxing and not being anxious so that my baby wouldn't be anxious, I think something deep down inside of me said, uh, you need to stay the course in terms of being the good girl, being the good daughter, being the good wife, being the good whatever that is um, person that kind of suppresses who you are. So fast forward from there and in 2017, I was diagnosed with invasive lobular carcinoma, which is breast cancer. And by this time, I had two children. My son was 11. My daughter was six. And once the doctor said that I had breast cancer, I didn't hear anything else. She said, my mind went to what's going to happen to my children? Because of course, you go from zero to I'm dead already. And oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then the other question was, if I'm going to beat this, am I happy with the way that my life is going? Am I doing what I want to do? Am I leaving the legacy that I want to leave? And the answer was no. Mm. And so with that, mind you, this was 20 years after having lost my baby. Um, I started to explore my story and I realized that 20 years prior is when I had stopped pushing life and started just living by default, simply doing the next easy thing rather than orchestrating the life that I wanted to live. And so in in that realization, there were a lot of tears. There was a lot of, oh my God, I can't believe this is where I am. I thought I'd put that away 20 years ago, but I realized that it was the shame that had held me back, the shame that made me feel unworthy that had held me back. And once I was able to face that and kind of move through it, I realized that I'm worthy of whatever it is that I want, because what I want has been put there for a reason. I'm the only one of me that's ever going to be or has ever been. Therefore, if I miss my calling, then the world misses whatever it is that I came here to deliver. And so my journey started there in terms of coaching, um, coaching women first to personal development, and then it was to help them with building their entrepreneurial business. And then all of these things, I told myself I needed to stay open to move in the direction that worked for me. And I thought to myself, people are going to think you're just so fickle, like you cannot just stick to one thing, but I didn't care. Because for me, it was about finding the place, the space that I was meant to be 
and flourishing in that space and not necessarily flourishing somewhere where people think I need to be or I need to stay. And I told many people, I would love to do some speaking engagements. I want to do some consulting, I'm coaching. And then of course, 2020, George Floyd happened. And I got a call and they said, we're doing a vigil. Would you like to speak? And I said, absolutely, I would like to speak. And I spoke. And then I got an email that said, I've been watching you for many years. And I think that you found your true north. I would love for you to be on the podcast. So I did that podcast and I got another call. We would like for you to, to speak. We would like for you to coach. We would like for you to this. And I thought to myself, well, I think that that's what happens when you find that space that you're actually supposed to be in. It's like all of a sudden things become magnetized to you because that's the level that you are vibrating. So that is how I came to be where I am. But even in this journey, in this place that what I'm doing now, I had to find the language and I had to find the information and I had to find the perspective that works for me or that allows me to do it in the best way possible. And for me, it's not talking so much about diversity, even though my podcast is called Diversity Dish, but it's not so much talking about diversity as it is talking about equity. And it is talking about inclusion, which means creating spaces where everyone, where people simply feel that they can arrive as who they are, and they are honored for that, and they are listened to, and their information is taken into account and helps move forward. Because diversity, as far as I am concerned, is a product of equity and inclusion. So that is like the long, short version wow. <laughs> of how I got to where I am today. Wow, Sidrilla. Thank you for sharing that path because I can yeah. see how it, it landed where you are today and what you're focusing on today, helping people to feel welcomed and feel belonged and, and be inclusive because yeah. shame is something that, oh my God, it will weigh you down and I mean, I'm sorry to hear all of the tragic experiences and the loss that you have gone through and how it has impacted you. And I'm grateful that you're using this story to empower others and to help yeah. others feel included and belong. So when you're talking about this space of equity and you know that this show is really about, you know, the, the diversity and inclusion among Black cultures, you know, there are some people who don't think we have a problem. They don't think that, you know, Black people specifically feels like they, the racism doesn't exist or, you know, we don't need to put any attention on this. How would you, you know, approach this conversation with the critical thinking mindset that you teach with? Wow, that's, that's a really great question. And I can see how some people don't feel that there's a problem. I can. I've grown up sheltered and I've grown up in mostly white spaces. I'm married to a white man. I've, I've grown up in situations that would not normally allow someone to be able to see how racism impacts us. The thing is that we expect racism to be overt. 
We expect racism to be that person that calls us the N-word. We expect racism to be that person that spits on us or that looks at us strangely or that does something. Whereas if we understand, if we truly think about what racism is, the system that it is, the system that was put into place to ensure that the white race were always at the top of the ladder, seen as the cream of the crop, and the Black race, which again, we need to also remind ourselves that race is a construct, but the Black race was at the bottom and the lowest of the low, then we can begin to see how the system works against us. I consider myself a successful person. I am a person who gets along well with different people. But I've realized over the years that I've often made myself small in order to make someone else comfortable. Mm. And when you can begin to see how you've suppressed yourself in order to make someone else comfortable, you will begin to see how racism and white supremacy works. If I have to make myself small because speaking the way that I want to speak and speaking the things that I want to say and feeling the things that I feel make someone else feel threatened, that is white supremacy. That is racism. If my child gets hit by another child and I get angry and the white administrators are afraid of that anger, that is white supremacy. That is racism. Simply because someone is not overt in their racism does not mean they do not buy into racism. Now, here's the other thing. You do not have to be white to buy into white supremacy. Come on, come on, Cedrola. Come on, come on, let's go. You do not have to be white to buy into racism. Racism is a power system, right? So we know that white people hold the power and they're holding onto it tightly, right? But you do not have to be white to help them do that. And so when Black people say to me, I don't see any racism, I don't think that there is a problem, I say to them, okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the times that you felt uncomfortable in the presence of other people. Let's just take a look at how you've grown in your position in light of other people. Let's just think for a moment, what are those feelings that you feel? And sometimes it's really hard because a lot of times people don't self-examine in order to be able to say these things. Let's also think about this. Just because it hasn't happened to you or you don't think it's happened to you does not mean that it does not happen. It does not mean that it is not out there and that it is not happening to someone. So there's so many nuances. And I say this all the time. It's like language, the way that we act and react has evolved to such heights that the nuances are almost imperceptible sometimes. Mm -hmm. I remember in election year 2016, And that was like a very fervent, you know, why do you think he's racist? 
kind of thing, you know? And, and I go, you know what? If you watch what he says and you don't see it, I really can't help you. But if I say to you, that thing that he said was racist and you say to me, I don't see how you are helping this white supremacist uh, culture to flourish. I cannot make you see something that you have not lived unless you are willing to look at it from my perspective, right? So if a Black person says, well, he's not racist because he likes such and such. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who are innately racist, who have Black family, who love Black, Asian, white. They still have these people in their lives. The difference is that they don't take into account the different lives that those people live and how society affects them. They simply think that they're my friend. I treat them well, so they must be treated well. And so there's no problem. It's always about helping people to shift a little bit perspective. Um, I love it. I love it so much. It's so powerful because like you, I mean, I grew up in the islands, but then I, I did my studies in Minnesota. And so through my mom, who was in tourism before she started being a teacher, I've been in a lot of spaces where I felt very comfortable. And it could have been a situation where I could easily say, well, yeah, that doesn't exist either. I don't see it. It's not happening to me um, because I felt very confident in how I was showing up. But throughout the journey of experiences, you listen, listening to other people and seeing and learning the history and learning the system, it gives you a more greater awareness and appreciation. And I'll say, because I personally had experiences with other white people who were advocates or allies who had very clear and open conversations about the racism they observed, even when I was in a space, in a business space, and they were friends with people who were very racist, but smiling on the front and talking about other people <laughs> behind their back. It's because of those conversations that I actually went a bit deeper. Um, and to say, you know, even if this particular situation hasn't happened to me, it doesn't mean that it's not affecting others. And I love the way mm -hmm. you connect the dots for us saying that it's, you know, it's not overt. That's what we think it is. But going deeper within yourself to have a greater understanding and to understand that, okay, where does the covert racism lie? Right. You know, when I teach about bias, I say, you know, we process 11 million bits of information every second of our lives. And the most information that we receive is from the media. So we're talking about uh, television, movies, books, radio, all of these things. And so if all of these things were created by and made for white people, then the information, the language, the, the nuances are all going to be speaking to the people that they were created for. And it's only in the past you know, I don't know, 50, 60 years that we've seen uh, magazines that are made for uh, Black people and, and other people. But even still, there's so many things that we ingest, which is why you don't have to be white to, to support white supremacy. 
We are fashioned in this society. And if we do not take the time and put in the effort to learn and to, to see and to discern and to dismantle, then we're just as culpable, right? Exactly. As, as any other person. And everyone needs to do the work. There's something this week that I was talking about, and that is that as Black people, we talk a lot about generational trauma, the generational trauma that we carry and generational trauma that we need to heal. And I believe that there is a lot of generational trauma within the Black culture and within the different Black cultures, right? Those cultures, whether you're from Haiti, you're from Jamaica, you're from Bahamas, you're from the, the St. Croix, you're from Nigeria, you're from Ghana. There are different levels of generational trauma that we all need to contend with. The problem that we're seeing and that I'm seeing or that I'm feeling right now is that white people don't think they have generational trauma. And white people have an enormous amount of generational trauma because if you were working to put this system in place, you not only had to traumatize yourself, you had to traumatize others, right? You had to dehumanize yourself in order to dehumanize another human being. And then let's just take one simple scenario. You are the plantation owner and you have a wife right? And you sleep with your wife and you have children. But now your wife has to watch you go and rape a woman whom you don't even see as human, but that's where he goes and gets sexually fulfilled. You don't think that's generational trauma that needs to be healed in people's psyches and in, in lineage? I absolutely think that there is a lot of generational trauma within the white community that is not being addressed because they refuse to look at history properly. They refuse to acknowledge that any of what happened back then has anything to do with them now. Whereas we're constantly going, everything that happened back then has everything to do with what's happening now. And so there's a disconnect in the conversation and it's really affecting the way that we can move forward in this work. I think you are the perfect person for this conversation, Sidrola, because I am <laughs> seeing the dots because a part of why I feel we don't address the history is because of the shame. When things in our yes. past, you know, it's, it's horrific, it's horrendous, it's shameful. We are not connecting the dots that, okay, this thing that happened in the past is actually what's happening right now, or we're yes. not, we're afraid to address it because it's embarrassing, it's horrendous, it makes us look bad. And as I'm listening to you talk about this and talk about those white people who are afraid to address the horrific, horrendous parts that bring shame to their past, I hear your story about the experience of shame and yes. how 20 years it sat in your system, in your body, impacting you unknowingly until you stopped and paused and yes. explored and took yourself off the default train. So I think you are the perfect person to <laughs> have this conversation to help us connect the dots. Um, I know we're getting ready to wrap up. And so I just want to make sure that our guests 
taught so many powerful nuggets that you shared. I mean, starting off with your parents, those of you that are listening that are parents, you know, Sidroluk is from Haiti and you heard her talk about how her country has been vilified, ostracized, maligned, and to have someone to speak with so much pride and power and confidence about where they're from when so many others are ashamed and they hide it and they choose to be anything other than who they really are. What I heard, and I hope what you heard too, was that it starts with your parents. So parents, if you're out there, begin to use those words of pride, speak positively about where you're from so that your children and the next generation can pick up this confidence moving into this world. I also wanted to point out when Sajola said as soon as she graduated, she felt she was obsolete. Listen, <laughs> you have to constantly evolve. You have to get off the default train, even if you choose a path and you know that it's the right path for you because the world is changing, like what we're experiencing right now, mm-hmm. you can become obsolete. So what do you do? Do you lay down, give up, roll over and die? No. You pick up and you move forward and you continue to press through so that you can live and connect to the true essence of who you are. And then, of course, the internalized shame. This one was a big one for me that stood out in your conversation, Sidrola. That part of being the good girl, the good person, the good mom, the good wife. I think right now, especially... Uh, with the last few years, so many moms and so many women, I mean, men too, have mm-hmm. gone through this identity shift of who am I now that yeah. we're in this crisis? And you mm-hmm. have taught us through your story how going through a crisis impacts our identity. You know, mm-hmm. it rocks that identity. We feel like we have to continue right. that same person no matter what's going on around us. And then, yeah. then keep up. We feel guilty. We feel frustrated. We feel embarrassed. But I hope that our audience knows that through your story, it's okay to reinvent yourself, rediscover who you are as you're going through crisis. Mm-hmm. So Jola, before we yes. end, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't covered? One of the things that I like to say to people is that we as individuals, each individual has power. And we need to own that power because we look at organizations, we look at industries and we think, oh, that industry is this way or that organization is that way. And yet we are a cog in that wheel. And so if we would tap into our personal power and begin to use that personal power towards dismantling, we could collectively create a a shift that would truly help our children and grandchildren to live in a different world than we do right now. Fantastic. And if they uh, want to connect with you, where can they reach out to you? The best way is diversitydish.com. I have everything there, consulting, social media, podcast episodes, everything is there. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Sidrola, for coming on the show, giving us the scoops on how to get the internalized shame out of our systems, off our back and step into our true, true purpose. Bridge to you listeners, make sure that you give us a rating, let us know, reach out to Sidrola, let her know how you were impacted by this conversation. And until next time, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. 
visit clairecommunicationsolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at Clear Communication Coach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.